0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. There had been abuse in my
1: family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature.
0: Are you ready to get your world
2: rocked? Ready. Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it. One, two, three, four.
1: Before they were Fab, the four Beatles were young punks playing bars in Hamburg. But even then, they were unlike any other band. I'm Greg Kot of the Chicago Tribune, and I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Beatles
0: historian Mark Lewison tells us about young John, Paul, George, and Ringo. And we review the latest from Bruce Springsteen. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and we have got, Greg, one of our classic debates coming up. As long as I've known you, we have been fighting about the merits of Mr. Bruce Springsteen. Well, let's be right up front. You hate Springsteen. I uh, love Candy's Room Uh, That's a good song And (laughs) the rest of it Not so much Well I'm from Jersey You know (laughs) down the shore But I understand Jersey And I've never recognized The Jersey I love In Bruce Springsteen
1: Well as part of uh, Rating Springsteen's new album We are going to introduce A new ratings scale Which we will unveil Later on in the show But first we've got Some music news Blurred Lines from Robin Thicke The Ubiquitous Song of 2013 without a doubt the Nielsen SoundScan figures for the year confirmed that that was 6.49 million sold wow. of that particular track the top digital selling song of the year closely followed by Thrift Shop from Macklemore and Ryan Lewis a group called Florida Georgia Line a country duo that had a huge hit with a song called Cruise cracking the top 5 And that outsold by a few uh, hundred copies, the Lord single Royals that was everywhere. The top-selling album of the year, Justin Timberlake with the 2020 Experience, 2.4 million sold. And why do I mention that number? Because it is the lowest top-selling album of the SoundScan era since 1991. Timberlake followed by Eminem. Country artist Luke Bryan, Imagine Dragons at number four, and uh, Bruno Mars. Uh, We've got a little bit of news about him later on at number five. You know, Greg, it's worth stepping back just briefly to say,
0: since the SoundScan era began in 1991, we have been fascinated by these numbers because they finally represent real numbers, not Mm -hmm. numbers that can be fudged with radio play and stores reporting fake numbers, right? This is point of sale measured. The other reason we're very interested in the Nielsen SoundScan report at the beginning of each year is that there are big trends that are highlighted in the numbers this year you know everything seems kind of flat except for two noteworthy stories music streams grew by 32 percent 118 billion music streams meanwhile digital tracks being sold is down six percent up 32 percent for streaming down six percent for selling downloading Is the digital stream killing the download? The other story we've noticed uh, for several years running, and once again, the number's really healthy. Vinyl sales are up 33%. 6.1 million vinyl albums sold in 2013. We love our vinyl. We love that number.
2: Dream.
1: whenever I want you, all
0: I have to do is dream. Dream, dream, dream
1: all I have to do is dream is the song from the Everly Brothers. Uh, we marked the passing of Phil Everly at the age of seventy four earlier this month, uh, one half of that great country rock duo at the very ground floor of what became rock and roll. That song is part of an avalanche of Everly Brothers' recordings that is selling at an extremely high rate. Overall, nearly 700% gain in the Everly Brothers' songs being purchased in the week after Phil Everly's death, and an increase of 455% in the catalog of Everly Brothers' albums. Once again, sad but true, death a great career move.
0: Greg, moving from the uh, recorded arena to the live music stage, Coachella has announced its lineup for 2014. Coachella taking place in the desert out in California April 11th through 13th and then repeated the following weekend, the 18th through the 20th, is the big festival, that kicks-off festival season. So when Coachella announces its lineup, you've got a pretty good idea of what many of the other festivals are going to look like. The big headliners this year? Outcast reuniting, Muse, and Arcade Fire. The second big name tier of acts, Girl Talk, Lana Del Rey, Motorhead, might be Lemmy's last time, right? Lord, and two big reunions that have had the indie world buzzing The Replacements and Neutral Milk Hotel.
2: Ooh, I got a body full of.
1: And Jim, I know you're a big fan of the Super Bowl halftime performance. You were absolutely riveted by the news that uh, Bruno Mars was going to be the uh, halftime performer. But no, Bruno Mars is not enough because they've also now added the Red Hot Chili Peppers. What a combination. You know, if I was thinking of the perfect combination for a Super Bowl halftime, the Chili Peppers with Bruno Mars just immediately come to mind. Some more music news. We've got a major new entry in the extremely crowded field of streaming music services. Beats Music has thrown its hat in the ring alongside Spotify and Pandora and iTunes Radio beats music with a twist compared to some of these other services because they've got some big recognizable names behind it Trent Reznor and Dr. Dre have been in on the ground floor of it as well as Jimmy Iovine one of the top record executives in the
0: world and Dre and Iovine have already made a lot of money Greg selling Beats headphones big success in the hardware realm now they're moving into music To hear Beats Music CEO Ian Rogers talk about it, their selling point is curation. It's not a computer algorithm that's going to recommend music to you. It's going to be tastemakers, whether it's Rolling Stone or people from Pitchfork or, in the interest of full disclosure, they've asked you and I to compile some playlists, okay? Mm -hmm. So the idea is people who know and love music telling you, hey, if you dig that, you may dig this. There's been a lot of press about that, but this is a business story. As we said earlier music streams are up 32 percent this is the growth area besides vinyl in the music industry what we wanted to know from ian rogers when he came by sound opinions is how are they going to treat artists because some of the other streaming services have been harshly criticized for treating indie labels and artists poorly you know they're getting nothing for all of this music streaming we posed that question to ian
1: rogers the first thing that we're doing is we don't have a free service, and that's risky for us, but what that means is we pay more on a per-stream basis than anybody else. I mean, I'll be honest, the checks from us to artists are going to be small at the beginning because we have no subscribers today. $10 a month comes in to me. I push $7 back out to rights holders. So the more successful I am, the more successful the industry is, the more the music business grows. The majority of the revenue goes to rights holders. One, two, three, five. Listening to Sound Opinions, and many of you are going to recognize that. That's The Beatles, of course, with I Saw Her Standing There. It was the lead-off track on the first album they ever released here in the United States, Introducing the Beatles. And this month is the 50th anniversary of its release. So it's a great time to hear from the go-to expert on Beatles history, Mark Lewison. I think he's the world's leading historian as far as The Beatles are concerned, and he's written a number of books about the band, as well as projects for them, such as The Beatles Anthology. Yeah, Greg, this is the guy Beatles fans want to hear from when it comes to the Fab Four. And he's
0: just released a much-anticipated new book called The Beatles All These Years, Volume 1, Tune In. It's comprehensive. It's huge in scope. It's 800 pages long. And this is just part one. Now, this book covers the Beatles as young lads in Liverpool and also young punk rockers in Hamburg up until 1962, just a couple of years before Beatlemania and I Saw Her Standing There. Just who were John, Paul, George, and Ringo before they were the legends of all time? Let's ask Mark Lewison. Mark, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you very much. All right. So we know about Lennon's troubled upbringing, John Lennon's troubled upbringing and, you know, being raised by the aunt instead of the mom. But the way you painted in the book, it's almost as if he felt he had a curse on him, that people important to him in his life, people close to him, would die, inevitably die on him.
2: Yes, yes. And and that was the way that things panned out. You can understand why he thought that, because uh, he, as you say, he, I mean, he didn't see his father really from the age of five until he was a famous Beatle. And his mother was not really in his life very much. She was in and out. And when finally he was building a relationship with her, she was run down and killed outside his house when he was 17. He also lost his uncle, who was like his father figure. And then, if you carry on, well, one of his best friends uh, in life was Stuart Sutcliffe, the fifth Beatle. And Stuart, he died at the age of 21 of a brain hemorrhage, which was another devastating blow for John. And then, project it further, Brian Epstein died at the age of 32, so, John did feel that all the people that he was getting close to were dying on him. And this obviously had a, a pretty devastating effect on his personality.
0: especially you uh, found out a lot more detail
2: than we've ever gotten about John and the death of his mother. Yes, the death of his mother that was obviously a traumatic episode in his life and uh, scarred him deeply because he'd never really I mean he wrote that song, you know, you have me but I never had you. things would have been very different had she lived, I'm sure, because she was a great encourager of his talent. But at the same time, she was regularly derailing him from the things that his aunt, who was more like his mother in a sense, that she was really trying to raise him. Um, Like, for example, you know, John was at school and the exams were coming up and his aunt was trying very, very hard to make sure that he took these tests and passed them and had a good career ahead of him. And his mother was encouraging him to play truant from school, to play hooky. So she was an unusual woman. Had she not died, things could have been very, very different. But uh, when he got together with Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney's mother had already died as well, and this was something that they had in common, amongst many other things.
1: Yeah, they got together very young. This is hard scrabble existence. The early part of their story, people may not realize. I mean, this band, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but in reading this book, it came across to me that they really did not have it together from a standpoint of any kind of a plan. I mean, uh, Lenin's philosophy was, uh, what was the words, uh, you know, we'll see what happens, right? Uh, yeah, it, it something was, will turn up. Something There's will always turn up. their mantra. You know, we're going day to day. We're not really sure what we're going to be uh, do here, but we're going to become this
2: big band somehow. They were fairly hopeless at organizing themselves as well. <laughs> they needed someone to come along and put things into shape for them. Only a few years later, they're, they're making
1: tracks like Tomorrow Never Knows. Was there a kernel of that in 1957, 58, when these teenagers were just sort of scruffing along, that they would ever... Be able to achieve
2: that level of musical sophistication? You would think not, but what they did have always was uh, an original talent and the desire to keep moving on and to try something new. There's a story in the book that happens in 1961, which is, you know, only two and a half years, say, before the Ed Sullivan show, when they are the best band in Liverpool. Liverpool has a rock scene unique to the whole world. And they are the biggest band there and they run out of challenges. There's nothing, nowhere else for them to play. No, they can't earn any more money. They're already at maximum and they're bored. <laughs> um, and this was, this was the Beatles. They got bored very quickly and always were looking for the next challenge, the next direction they could go in. So on that basis, you can see how their music would evolve so rapidly because they were the kind of guys who would always be moving on. But obviously, something like Tomorrow Never Knows was beyond anybody's uh, imagination at that point. But similarly, you, n- you mustn't discount songs like Love Me Do and Please Please Me. When they recorded them, no songs like that had ever been recorded before. Not in Britain and not even in America, which was where all the music that they loved actually did come from.
1: they start to perform in Hamburg, that seemed to be the point where the band actually does play a sequence of gigs from six to 12 hours a night uh, on a basically a nightly basis. And they become a band, a great band. To quote you in the book, there was no one else like them, not in Hamburg, not in Liverpool, not anywhere in the world. (laughs) That's Mm. pretty pretty bold statement there it seemed like they made some kind of a magical transition once they got to play consistently was it just a matter of getting the gig
2: yeah they went to hamburg fairly untogether they they went there with a drummer they'd not played with before and are still a beginner on bass uh Stuart. and john paul and george had been doing this for two three years by that point but still hadn't really had a lot of stage time together so they discovered who they were Playing six, seven hours a night, as you say, on the stages in Hamburg and and immediately, for example, that one of the first things they did there was decide among themselves that though they were playing for so many hours a night, they would try not to repeat themselves, so it led to a very instant and dramatic broadening and deepening of their repertoire, and the beatles always had a phenomenal repertoire; they knew so much music. And I don't doubt that some of it was pretty rough because, after all, they were playing it on stage for the first time. They would do all the first Elvis LP, all the first Carl Perkins LP. Well, it took some a dream, I mean, the interesting thing is that they were so transformed by Hamburg... But no other liverpool group who went to hamburg and returned to return home to merseyside were transformed in the same way it was only the beatles who were able to adapt and, and able to be transformed in that way they had from the very outset all that it took to be a great band because they were inquisitive and they were rule breakers and no one could say no to them and they were you know in the nicest sense or even in the most bolshie sense they were arrogant
0: We'll continue looking back at the early days of the Beatles with Mark Lewison after a quick break here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. When we come back, who was the biggest stud in the band? And Greg and I reignite a classic Sound Opinions debate, to Bruce or not to Bruce. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim Diargatis, my partner is Greg Cott, and we're joined by the world's leading authority on all things Beatles, Mark Lewison. He recently released the first part of a Beatles history called All These Years, with this volume focusing on the early years in Liverpool and then touring in Hamburg, Germany, all before 1962, before the Beatles hit it big. You just heard a little bit of a 1958 recording by the Quarrymen, who were John, Paul, and George, before the Beatles. Incidentally, the only song to credit the duo of McCartney and Harrison. By the time they became the Beatles, the band was, of course, a five-piece with Pete Best on drums and Stuart Sutcliffe as the bassist. And, Mark, this is one of the bits of history in the book that blew my mind. You found a letter that Stu wrote home in 1960 from Hamburg. Paul has turned out the real black sheep of the trip. Everyone hates him, and I only feel sorry for him. So, everything mm. wasn't us against the world and we love each other, brothers in arms, was it? Mm.
2: No, they're, I mean, they're a, they're a group of young guys. That, you know, it's so easy now to think of the Beatles as legends and all those words that we overuse these days, but they're just guys in a band. And guys in a band need to find out their relationships with one another. And there are moments of envy and there are rivalries and there are close, you know, close alliances within the five-piece band because that's what they were, five-piece. What are you doing? I just, I, it's murder. I can't do I can't keep it up. I just I'm trying to keep this... I haven't got one. Well, your clothes have been brought hours ago. Paul had a particular problem with Stuart. Stuart was the bass player. Paul wasn't envious of that. He didn't want to be the bass player. But he was envious of Stuart's closeness to John and he, because he wanted to be the closest to John, because John was the leader and he was the one they all idolized. And he was envious of Stuart's friendship with these German friends that they had made Astrid, Klaus, and Jürgen. Klaus Vormann, the bass player, now famous. Mm-hmm. Jürgen Vollmer, a young photographer, and Astrid Kircher, who. Became Stuart's fiance by the end of that trip. Because they were close to Stuart and it was recognized by everyone that Stuart and Paul did not get on, that Paul was jealous of Stuart. Then Paul was kind of became the outsider on that on that trip. Mm. It was just a moment in time, but you know, it's real. It's yeah. real. They're not superstars yet. They're just guys who are you know, working out their place in this in this situation.
0: We were four guys that uh I met Paul said, do you want to join me band, you know? And then George joined, and then Ringo joined. We were just a band who made it very, very big, that's all. Okay, more real. The Trug of Choice in those times. I'd never heard it named before your (laughs) book. And uh, George Harrison, shall we say, Initiation to the Joys of Adulthood. Tell Uh, us about those two facts.
2: Well, the Beatles were always into whatever they could get, some more than others. But back in Liverpool, before they even went to Hamburg, they had an experience with England's beat poet. He was a guy called Royston Ellis, and he was like England's version of Allen Ginsberg. And he introduced them to Benzedrine, but John enjoyed it the most or John was into it the most and George was close behind him and Paul was reticent because he knew that drugs were a little bit dangerous and his mother had been a nurse and and he knew something of all this. When they get to Hamburg, not actually the first time, the first time they were fueled only by booze, lots of it. The second time they went, they were introduced to a German women's slimming pill called Preludin. <laughs> they called it Prellis. Mm-hmm. And it was necessary to stay up, because you had to play all night long. Pete didn't take any. Pete Best, the drummer. Stuart took them. Paul took a few. George took a lot. And John took the most. And this was always <laughs> the way they would do things. Uh, because John was that kind of a guy. He was like, what is this going to do to me? I don't know. I'll swallow it, and I'll tell you later. So the prelis was what they took. And these were given to them by a little old lady who worked in the toilets in Germany. <laughs> uh, her name was Rosa. And and yes, sex was very freely available. I mean, just imagine as young guys growing up in England, living with your parents still, opportunities for closeness with girls are not that common. Uh, but then you go to Hamburg and it's available. And um, when George tells the story in the anthology book, actually, and that's where I get the quote from, um, of how the night he lost his virginity, it was in a room with all the others. They were all there in bunk beds, and he was in his bunk bed with a, a local young fraulein. And um, at the end of it, everyone applauded. They all broke into applause, and that was the moment he lost his virginity. <laughs> yes. These guys were close. Well, I bought that first cool cat. He said, man, look at that. Man, do you see what I see? Well, I want that middle chick. I want that little chick. Hey, man, she a jig for me.
1: We're talking with Mark Lewison, author of Tune In, the first part of a comprehensive Beatles history here on Sound Opinions. Mark, one of the things you get into in the book is the personalities, the psychology of these guys, Lennon in particular, the the complexity of Lennon, the closeness to the women in his life, his mother, his aunt, but also uh, his girlfriends and his wife, his physical violence with some of these women. You know, a disturbing part of his personality, despite his deep appreciation and love of the women in his life, also the propensity
2: towards physical violence. Well, John Lennon is a very, very hard man to categorize. In this early period of time, you could call him, if you like, an angry young man. And to many people, he came across that way. He was verbally, verbally, extremely sharp. If you were a pushover, he would push you over. If you stood up to him, he would respect you. But a lot of people just saw, got the bad end of John's tongue and he could be pretty verbally cutting, to say the least. But having said that, people flocked to him because he was great company and he was the best friend that anybody ever had. He would go to the last mile for you and he would give you his last penny if you needed it. But at the same time, as all of that, he was also writing poetry and doing art and making people laugh all the time. He was hysterically funny. He could be very tender with his girlfriends. They would see a tenderness to him that, and a vulnerability to him that he didn't let other people see. And yet, at the same time, when he was mad or angry, he could hit out. There's no way you can hide this. He actually did hit women. But mostly, how do we know this? Because he said it. I mean, there's the line in Getting Better on Sergeant Pepper, you know, I used to be cruel to my woman, I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved. Mm -hmm. He wrote that line and it's a true line. I used to be cruel to my woman, I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved. Man, I was mean, but I'm changing my scene And I'm doing the best that I can He revealed his own anger in interviews he was always so honest in the way that he spoke of himself revealing his own shortcomings but eventually in about 1959-60 when after hitting Cynthia his girlfriend one time he swore he'd never do it again and she swears to this day that he didn't that that was the end of it so he was on a journey if you like and he was he would come to be embarrassed about his youthful behavior to a degree but the important thing about him is that he got it out of himself.
1: You know, another fascinating uh, anecdote. George Harrison, we have to bring him in here. Fascinating character. They lose their gig in Hamburg, right, uh, on a technicality because he wasn't of age. You know, he I was can imagine. Yeah, I can. Was ol- in
2: all all that scene at the age of seventeen.
1: I can imagine a number of bands would have broken up at that point. It's amazing that they survived that. In reading in reading
2: back on it. Stuart had joined them by this point, and he was, you know, he fitted awkwardly, as I say, because of the rivalry that Paul had with him. But essentially, the Beatles were this very, very strong core trio of John Paul and George, and they'd been together since the beginning of '58. There seems to have been no talk of, of ever getting rid of George from the group. Even when he was sent home early from Hamburg, they would pick him up again later. He didn't actually know when they would be home so he was really disappointed to have to leave them but it turned out that when he got back to liverpool the slow way that paul and pete were already home ahead of him because after he left they were deported and sent home by plane hmm. for allegedly trying to set fire to their dingy quarters these <laughs> these rooms in which they were sleeping in the back of an old flea cinema but when they got home John Lennon did think about do I really want to do this anymore and it was one of those crossroads moments and what you find out when you really look at this story is it wasn't just simply a, a straight upward line of, you know, on a trajectory of, you know, they're going to make it to the very top of most of the poppermost. They yeah. actually had these moments where they stopped and thought, do we really want to do this, you know, or shall we do something else? But obviously they did keep on going and... Um, Thank goodness they did. Money don't get everything it's soon. What it don't get, I can use that give me money. What I want, that's what I want. What I want, that's what I want.
0: That's what I want. We are talking to Mark Lewison. The author of Tune In the Beatles All These Years, first volume of what will be a three-volume definitive biography uh, for all time of The Beatles. So uh, George was brought up by by Greg. I got to go to Ringo because he, of course, replaces Pete Best, that original drummer who was with them there in Hamburg, although Ringo was bouncing around Hamburg. All right. What blew my mind is just how difficult a childhood Ringo had, spending a lot of those years in the hospital, recovering from pleurisy, from TB. you write right. Point blank. The future held nothing whatever in store for him. Then you contrast that later with when he begins to play local gigs with bands. Ringo becomes the stud. According to you, he was the sexual superhero of the Beatles. I mean, now, (laughs) talk about a mind-blowing fact.
2: Yes well he they were they were all pretty strong sexually um <laughs> but but absolutely the joy of working those holiday camp seasons the his the group he was with then Rory Storm and the Hurricanes they had three consecutive summer seasons at these camps and that means that for each summer for 3 months in the summers of 1960 61 and 62 They were pretty much living and working on a holiday camp. So it was the classic thing for guys growing up. You know, they were playing rock and roll on stage, drinking in the bar. And there was an endless conveyor belt of girls with whom um, they could enjoy all their other pleasures. So, yeah, they took it while they could. That's what they were in it for. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, sex also plays a role, despite the mythology, in George Martin linking up with the Beatles. So the legend would have us believe that Martin sees these guys, they're kind of scruffy, but he sees some talent and he's impressed by their northern wit, right? Mm -hmm. There's something here. There's a spark here. In fact, when they wind up on his Parlophone label, it's this weird convoluted set of circumstances that winds up where he's basically giving this group as
2: a punishment for having had an affair with his secretary, who he soon (laughs) marries. Yes, that's an untold story. And um, I finally got to the bottom of something that's been puzzling me for a very long time, which was why were the Beatles signed to Parlophone EMI by George Martin before he ever met them? And indeed, on the back of something, a little that he'd heard of them that he didn't like. So I finally got to the bottom of it. And as you say, it's complex and convoluted, but it does all make sense. They got a recording contract thanks to a man called Kim Bennett, who is a a hero of this story that no one's ever heard of. If it wasn't for his persistence and his dogged determination, they wouldn't have got a recording contract. And ultimately, George Martin had his arm twisted to give them one. But to be fair, a couple of things to add about that. First of all, the relationship he was having with his secretary was very quiet, Very. they were, they were very quiet and, com- and, and secretive about it because he was still married and, and his wife wouldn't grant him a divorce. But they have now been together for 57 years, I think, um, and had children and grandchildren and maybe even great-grandchildren. So in a sense, and rather beautifully, by complete miracle of good fortune, the Beatles got their recording contract through a love affair. Mm. that is still standing to this day, and that's quite appropriate in a way. Well, love is all you Um, need. (laughs) Love is all they needed, absolutely. All you need is love, love. Love is all you need. When George Martin met them, having signed these guys and without even knowing what they looked like, he thought they were called the Beatles with two T's, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that's how their contract was issued. When he met them he immediately did fall for the northern wit and and the talent and their originality. And it took a little while to gel, but by the end of 62, when this book finishes, he's already completely tuned into their talent, their originality. He's going to work with them. He's going to let them do their songs. He's going to make an album with them. He's even thinking of doing a live album with them in the cavern. And he's got it. Well,
1: the truth about Richie Starkey, a.k.a. Ringo Starr, uh, I want to go back to that a little bit, because people, I I, I think, Jim and I, when we talk about the Beatles, we always talk about Ringo being so vastly underappreciated in terms of what he did with that band musically. But here, you you, you sort of set up this amazing tale. I mean, the Ringo Starr story, perhaps the most unfortunate beginnings of of any of the Beatles, and that's saying something, because they all had difficulties early in their life, but also emerging... In his teens, as as the most successful of the four, as a drummer, he seemed to be like the most in-demand drummer in Liverpool at a certain point, and uh, yeah. it was serendipitous, much like the meeting with uh, George Martin and, and Brian Epstein, that uh, they ran into Ringo and he sort of completed the band.
2: Yeah. Yeah, he was um, he was always the go-to drummer for the best group in Liverpool when he started out with skiffle music, you know, 1920s American Chicago rent party music, which was really big in England at a crucial time in the lives of these guys. Because just when they were 14, 15, 16 years old, it encouraged them to pick up guitars and sing and in Rich's case to play drums. Whenever, you know, the Top Skiffle group in Liverpool, who did they have on drums? Richie Starkey. The top rock group in Liverpool before the Beatles came back from Hamburg, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, who did they have on drums? Ringo Starr. And who did the Beatles, the biggest group by far by 1962, who did they want? Ringo. He was the guy that they always wanted. He was the the ultimate drummer for musicians because he was rock steady. And he could do all the styles, but and though he brought his personality to the kit, he wasn't flash with it. He knew his main place was to be there for the others. Ah! I mean, I don't understand why people don't think he's a great drummer. I just don't understand it. I mean, the Beatles recorded 215 tracks, right, in their main recording period of 62 to 70. They recorded in all these different styles. Ringo's the drummer on pretty much every track, except for the period when he walked out for a while during the White Album. But essentially, he's there on every single track. How many tracks have bad drumming? (laughs) How many?
1: When you think about what was going on in rock and roll, and it was obviously about, you know, lead singers, uh, Wild Men, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, even Buddy Holly and the Crickets, while it was conceived as a band, it was clearly Buddy Holly and these other guys. And yet here you have the Beatles, where you have two pretty strong personalities at the front of the band. You've got a third member of the band in Harrison, who was contributing mightily on guitar and as a singer. And then you add uh, Ringo later on down the road, where even he was contributing vocals to tracks. This was kind of a new way of approaching the band, the rock and roll band. How how do you sort of take that? It was definitely
2: original um, and this is why they had such difficulty getting a recording contract in England and then in America as well where they were also rejected a lot. I've had people tell me incorrectly, you know, when, I'm, when researching and doing interviews for this book, well, there were loads of groups, you know, and, and the Beatles were just another – hang on a minute, there were not loads of groups – The Beatles' impact was so strong and so immediate that when they broke through here in 64 and in Britain in 63, loads of groups quickly followed, but at the time they came up, there was no-one like them. It was in England Cliff Richard and the Shadows. It was Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. The idea of a group called The something really only existed in do what and goal group sounds, you know, the Shiro's, the Marvelettes, the Ronettes and so on. But in terms of three guitar three guys with guitars and a guy on drums, writing their own songs, doing the you know, not just one vocalist but two or three or even all four of them, this was completely new.
0: We were performers in Liverpool, Hamburg and around the dance halls, you know, and what we generated was fantastic. Well, we played straight rock. And there was nobody to touch us in Britain,
2: you know. That boy isn't good
0: We are talking to Mark Lewis on, author of Tune in the Beatles All These Years, first of the three-volume biography which only takes us up to the uh, uh, tail end of 62. Uh, yeah. Mark, let's talk journalism. What an extraordinary feat of musical journalism, interviewing hundreds of people, upturning thousands of previously uh, unlooked at documents. But the voices missing are the two surviving Beatles, McCartney and and Ringo. Now this is interesting not missing
2: though they're not well they're not missing right
0: that's what i want to get to um you know paul in particular seems to always have an agenda in telling the story his way and there's a song on his new album new called early days and and he sings everyone seems to have their own opinions of who did this and who did that but as for me i don't see how they can remember when they weren't where it was at
2: now everybody seems to have their I don't see how they can remember When they weren't where it was at Seems like he's taking
0: a shot at you, despite having written the introduction to that phenomenal book, The Complete Beatles Recording Sessions, where he seemed very grateful that someone was documenting exactly what they'd done in the studio, finally.
2: Yeah, he's he's liked my past books a lot. I mean, he used The Beatles Live and the Sessions book and my Beatles The Complete Beatles Chronicle in, you know, as reference. Um he is taking a shot at me, but not just me. He's taking a shot at everybody out there who thinks they know the Beatles story better than him. I think it really my feeling is that it it goes back, well it can go back a very long way, but in particular it goes back to a few months on on his most recent US tour. When he decided to perform Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite. And a whole load of people went, You can't do that. That's a John Lennon song. And it's like, that really, I think, got up his nose. You know, he didn't help me with this book, but I have interviewed Paul. I used to work for him, and I have interviewed him a lot down the years, and all those interviews are in this book anyway. They do a lot of media when they're promoting something, but they don't generally get involved in authors' books very much. You may have noticed that. I can't think of many times when they've given a book author an interview, unless it's for their own book. And it was very important for me that you know they did their anthology, the Beatles anthology, and the book that went with it. And I was involved in all of that. To me, it's very important, that, absolutely crucial, in fact, that these books are independent. So although I did ask him for an interview because there were certain things I, I wanted to know and, and all of that, I wasn't surprised when he said no, and it also doesn't really matter right? because I have everything that they've ever said to anybody at any time in any medium <laughs> mm-hmm. in this book. I Everything for me is fair game. It's a proper work of history. And so though they didn't authorise this book... And as I say, I wouldn't have wanted it. But though they didn't, they're in this book constantly all the way through because there's a vast repository of Beatle interviews that are really untouched by authors. And, you know, for me, it's all fair game. Mm -hmm. Well, clearly you felt that something
1: was missing from the story. What do you think, without maybe giving away too much of what you're going to be discussing in future volumes, what are what are a couple of the gaps that you see in their history? There's some of the distortions or things that maybe got you a little bit, you know, motivated to to write this book in, in, in such an in depth fashion that maybe were lacking in previous mm.
2: accounts of their history? Well, in terms of biography, the beatles I mean there are so many hundreds of books on the Beatles, right? Um, but in terms of biography still fairly only a few, only a handful really. People still talk about the Hunter Davis book which is now 45 years ago, and the Philip Norman book that came out 32 years ago... They both cram the Beatles story into one volume, which to me is, is, is you can't do that because it's, it's far too deep and broad a story to actually fit into one book. And they, neither of those books actually looks at the music very much. And, you know, after all, if these guys weren't musicians, we wouldn't be talking about them. Mm-hmm. So I just feel that the whole story has been told so many times, never right, never quite right. And at the end of the day... My feeling is, and certainly I I was always intent, not to write a rock biography. This is a history about a rock and roll band and the implications of everything they did and how it changed everybody's lives, really.
0: Mark Lewison is the author of The Beatles All These Years, Volume 1, Tune In. Mark, it's been great talking to you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for asking such good questions. And we want to hear from you at home. What do you think about the early days of the Beatles? What does it tell you about the band's tremendous legacy? And what burning Beatles questions would you like to hear answered in Mark Lewisohn's subsequent books? Call 888-859-1800. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, Greg and I wrestle once more with the boss. Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He's Greg Cott. And that, of course, is the boss from his 18th studio album, High Hopes, a song called American Skin, 41 Shots. Greg, that's not a new song. Springsteen always has played new material on stage when he's touring with the E Street Band or performing as a solo artist. Eventually, he goes in the studio, he records them. Over the last decade, he has acquired a bunch of songs that just haven't made it onto the studio albums. He says, I quote, some of our best unreleased material from the past decade. That's what High Hopes represents. It also represents sort of a new approach for him. There was a tour recently that Steve Van Zandt, the guitarist for the E Street Band, couldn't not partaken. So Tom Morello, probably the most innovative guitarist in the alt rock 90s, bringing the sounds of hip hop and heavy metal together. He was tapped to replace Van Zandt on tour Springsteen and Morello really hit it off and now Morello appears on 8 of the 12 songs on this new album otherwise it's produced by Springsteen's longtime producer Brendan O'Brien but with another new name Ron Anniello, who has worked with bands like Jars of Clay and Candlebox. So what is the boss giving us on this collection this new collection of new recordings of old material? Let's play another track from High Hopes and we'll come back and give our opinion on the new rating scale. This is Harry's Place by Bruce Springsteen on Sound Opinions.
2: You don't want to be around, brother, when Harry's goes, Harry's car, Harry's wife, Harry's dogs run, Harry's town, your blood and money spit shines, Harry's crown, you don't with Harry's money, you don't off Harry's girls, these are the rules, this is the world.
1: That is Bruce Springsteen with Harry's Place from the new album, High Hopes. And we're about to rate this album, Jim. And I'm pleased to announce that we have a new ratings system finally in place. I mean, this is a contentious poll that we were taking among our listeners. What should the new rating system be? And we got a lot of great suggestions on it. So what is it now? It is buy it, try it, trash it.
0: Okay, this way the technology won't get ahead of us, I think.
1: That's right. I think we can outlive any technological advance with this system. So now, we're going to rate this new record. I, I
0: think you're trying to change the subject and, and avoid having to say what you're going to have to say about this Springsteen album.
1: Well, you know, I, you got to be honest, and I I do love Springsteen. I I still think he's a very vital live performer, and that's what's so disappointing to me about this record, is that I do see a guy who's still very vital on stage. In fact, when I hear these songs performed live so energized, and then you hear the way it's recorded. Brendan O'Brien hasn't done any big favors with that big production style. And yes, he is trying to shake things up a little bit. There's sort of that mix of electronic and acoustic instruments. Bringing in Morello was another attempt, I think, to sort of update the sound, inject some new life into it. Okay, these were decent ideas that weren't really well executed in the recording studio. I have seen him perform songs like The Ghost of Tom Joad, American Skin, 41 Shots, and uh, the cover of Suicide's Dream Baby Dream countless times in concert. Springsteen apparently set out on this record to record definitive, quote-unquote, versions of all of those songs. And each one of them falls short of what I saw in concert. It's like he wrapped these great ideas in some sort of cellophane or painted some gloss over them. Why prettify these songs? That seems to be what's going on here. I'll it's tell you not why. helping his music. There are some great moments on this record. And I will give it a try-it rating rather than a full-on trash-it, although I'm tempted to go the full-on trash-it. Go for it. Go for it. Do it. There's four or five songs on here that I would recommend hearing, so it's a try-it. All right. You
0: know, Greg, I I want my life to be enriched by getting as much pleasure out of Bruce Springsteen as you do. I don't think he has a functioning cheese detector. I think (laughs) this guy is an unrepentant cheese dog. Given two choices at almost any crossroads, he will make the wrong one, both musically and production-wise, and especially lyric wise you know the lyrics of that song Hunter of the Invisible Game are truly beautiful and moving all right you have to listen to them and be moved the lyrics on the other hand of Harry's Place which we just played well, yeah. I mean this is like a sitcom Saturday Night Live skit version of Goodfellas the guys in Dubai, you yeah. know I mean it's like give me a break you know this is a trash it record and even many Springsteen fans are saying that so that's a uh, try it from you and a trash it from me on our new rating system by try it we mean stream it or borrow it from a friend give it a shot before dismissing it or embracing it and buying a permanent copy that's our new rating system while we're on the topic of freshening things up soundopinions.org is brand new it's got all sorts of bells and whistles it's swell check it out
1: and let us know what you think greg what do we have on the show next week next week jim we're going to take a trip to the bermuda triangle and look for those great bands that disappeared without a trace Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Thanks to Beatles
0: scholar Matthew L Blanc to our production staff, Jake Smith, our intern, Anthony Martinez, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn.
1: opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800.
2: New messages. Hello, my name is
1: Michael, and I'm from Long Island, New York, and I just heard Rodrigo and Gabriel, and uh, that was very good and also very funny. I'd love to have a beer with them. But I think you should listen to Martin Hayes and Dennis K. Hill. They're from Chicago, very similar and also very spectacular. Thanks. Good night. Jim and Greg, it's Jeff from San Jose. I wanted to say thanks for acknowledging the untimely passing of Ben Curtis' Secret Machines. Never forget at the time of the first record coming out, I was living in New York, working in the music biz actually, and the record label came to our offices to play the first record. It was just one of those bands that you knew within the first 30 seconds that there was something really special there. You heard that wall of sound and that John Bonham esque kick drum right in your face, and you knew there was something special there. So, good memories. So, thanks again. Great Desert Island pick. Hi, this is Trevor Adams calling from Grand Junction, Colorado. I really appreciated your tribute to Benjamin Curtis, the guitarist and vocalist from Secret Machines who passed away. But uh, I was really surprised that you didn't even mention the band that he was in for the past six years, the last years of his life. In 2007, he left Secret Machines and formed a new band called School of Seven Bells. I happen to love the music from both Secret Machines and School of Seven Bells. I just wanted to mention that people who might be discovering him for the first time now, he's passed. Don't forget to check out School of Seven Bells. This is Christopher from the beautiful city of music, Portland, Oregon. Just calling because I've noticed a pattern. It may or may not be legitimate, but if you guys are just going to burn a record at the stake, you always play a little bit of the song before the review and then say, and we'll share our opinion about this after the break.
0: Let's play a track and then we'll come back and give our opinions.
1: And then after the break, you totally just tear it to shreds. But if you don't say, we will share our opinion after the break, but you just say, come back, and we'll uh, review the new Maxwell. You know, you don't tear it apart. So I'm wondering you guys might be giving it away a little early. Anyhow, huge fan. Thanks. Bye. Give it away. It's all right. Give it
2: away. can do what you want. Give it away. Because I know you're to. Give it away.
0: Give it away. No more messages.